Bibles, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. It's really a great privilege for us to be able to spend time here in this letter that John wrote. And of all the studies that we've had in the past few years, I really think that this is the one that's been the hardest for me to to wrap my head around, to get the material so I can present it to you. Sometimes when I'm studying for sermons, um, I work on a sermon and the, and the thoughts just flow easily and they, and they come very quickly. And so I'm able, able to put a sermon together and, and other times it's just a real struggle to do this and to get it into an orderly presentation the way that I want to say it to you. And it seems like every sermon that I get ready to prepare in First John that it's a struggle to do that. And I don't mean that it's, that it's tedious to the point that I don't enjoy doing it, because I do. And it's really worth the trouble, worth the effort that has to go into this to be able to uh, pull out the truths that John has for us in this epistle. And really, I think that the harder that Scripture is uh, to get into and try to understand, the more rewarding that it is. I mean, whenever you get that that one thing there that, that's troubling you, and all of a sudden it just clicks like that. When that gets to you, it's, it's just like you've gotten closer to the Lord all of a sudden. And that's really how I feel as we go through First John here, that there are just some wonderful truths here that, that do take some, some time to extract from this so that we can really understand it. Now, the opening statements that I've made here tonight, I, I make those with a purpose, and they do figure into what I want to talk to you about tonight. This evening, we're going to talk about how that you know that you really are a Christian. And one thing that everybody needs to know when you come to church and you listen to the sermons that are being preached, that you have the same Holy Spirit living in you that I have in me. And your capability of understanding Scripture is every bit as much as great as as mine because that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what you have to do, you just have to lend yourself to the study of the Scripture. Let God open it for you so you can begin to understand it. But you've been given the same understanding of Scripture that I have if if you spend the time to go into it. Now, I want to read just one verse of Scripture this evening. And this is the 13th verse of, the first ch- uh, of chapter 4. And this is the, uh, the verse that we're going to spend all of our time on this evening, where the Apostle John says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Now, as you know, John has proposed various tests that we, uh, throughout this epistle, that enable us to have confidence that we really are the child of, uh, children of God. Uh, Do we believe the doctrines of the Bible? Do we believe what the Bible has to say about Jesus Christ? Do we believe who he is according to what the Scripture has to say about him? Or do we have some kind of an infatuation, some God of our imagination that's really nothing at all like the person that's in the Bible? That's extremely important for us to, in order to have confidence in our salvation, that we know who Jesus is. Another question that we might ask is the test that John gives us about obeying Christ. Do we obey the commandments of Christ? And as Christians, are we assured of our standing in Christ because we live righteously? There's one person who said that high levels of assurance are not obtained by low levels of morality. And that's certainly true. So these are issues that John deals with throughout this epistle. But the main thought here and the main proof that he presents to us is our relationship with God is centered around the idea of love. 
that love is the central issue. That love is the nature of God. And those that are born of God have that part of his nature. And this is what John says in verse number 7 of this chapter. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And then from that statement, he goes on to explain how that God gloriously demonstrated his love towards us in sending his only begotten Son that we might have life through him. So we come then to the 13th verse, and John tells us most pointedly here, how is it that we come to understand these truths? Why are we able to understand the doctrines of the faith? Why do we have the desire and the drive to obey the commandments of Christ, to live in a certain way? Why do we care about others, especially those that are difficult to love and difficult to care about? They're difficult people. Why do we do that? Why, why can we love them? Why should we love them when they've wronged us? And then most importantly, how do we know that we have really a right relationship with God? And the answer to that is found here in the 13th verse. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now, there are two major points that I want to give you in tonight's message. And the first one is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The regenerating work. Now, I want, we notice here that John begins verse 13 with a familiar expression. He says, hereby we know. And 27 times in this one little epistle, John uses that word know, and he uses this expression, hereby we know, or hereby know, six times. In chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 19, and verse 24, chapter 4, verse number 2, verse number 6, and then, of course, in the passage that we have tonight, the 13th verse. And the reason that John keeps using that word no is because of his opponents. They were people who claimed that they had superior knowledge uh, over and above the apostles. So they thought that they knew something when they really didn't know anything. They weren't true Christians. They denied the doctrines of the faith. They didn't live godly lives, obey commandments. They didn't show love for their brothers. So they really didn't know anything about God, and they weren't a part of God's family. But the real key to why they didn't know any of this and the way that a true believer knows it is because of this singular important factor, and that is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God was not in them. They didn't dwell in God, and God didn't dwell in them. So John intends for us here to understand that we have this interior witness of the Holy Spirit, and that's how we know that we're Christians. And we know that before we could ever learn the very first thing about Christ, before we could ever learn any of the doctrines of the faith, before we could ever know who Jesus is, we first had to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked about that a little bit in the last message, and we looked at it from the standpoint of man's depravity, the inability of man to come to God because of the fallen nature. And the Scripture said that man is dead in trespasses and sin. The nature that we have, this old sinful nature, is what we receive from our parents. And according to the Bible, that is a dead nature. It means that we're dead to spiritual life, and that's the same thing as saying that we're dead to Christ. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote to the Gentile believers, and he said, At that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
And so it's very clear from reading Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 that there is nothing but utter hopelessness for us unless a sovereign God, by an act of his mercy and his grace, should come upon an unbeliever and bring him into a new relationship. And that's what God does in regeneration. And so in regeneration, this is what happens to us. The Holy Spirit implants in us a new nature. He gives us a new nature. Now, the old sinful nature is incapable of any action towards God. The natural man is at enmity with God, which is the same thing as saying that we're hostile to God. Now, most people don't want to believe that. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday. And people will say, well, at no time was I ever hostile towards God. But I would beg to differ because God says differently. God says otherwise. We may not have been hostile to God as we understood him. And we're not hostile to God as long as uh, we think of God in unbiblical terms. And we're not hostile towards him uh, when we have made a God of our own imagination and a God who doesn't confront us with sin and a God who never says that he's going to punish us. But as soon as we learn that, when we learn that we are sinners condemned to hell by a righteous God, then we become hostile towards that God. And so we can't help but be anything but hostile because our interest as, as human beings is self-serving, self-magnifying, and self-preserving. And according to Scripture, you can't be any of those things and be a child of God. God says you can't be self-serving because he says you have to serve him. In fact, in biblical terminology, the Bible says that we become God's slaves. You can't be self-magnifying. Now here we listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, who was a very boastful man before he came to know Christ. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That is not an admission the Apostle Paul would have made before he was regenerated. Now, can you imagine this proud Pharisee, this one who said, I'm the Hebrew of the Hebrews, who's, who is educated at the feet of Gamaliel? Can you imagine that that man would have ever said, I am the chief of sinners? Pharisees didn't even believe they were sinners. They were the most righteous of all. But then Paul went on and he said in the 16th verse, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that last verse there that I read, verse 17, that is just one of those doxologies that you find Paul breaking out to very often in his teaching. Just all of a sudden he gets done and just he just has to praise God for who he is. So Paul stopped magnifying himself and he started for the first time after he came to know Christ to magnify God in the real way. So you can't magnify yourself anymore. And then you can't be self-preserving That's because your life doesn't matter anymore. Who you were before doesn't matter. Jesus said in Matthew 16, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. 
Now, there's uh, some very interesting statements that Paul makes there, or rather Jesus says. He said that a person that follows him must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. And we're going to get into that in our, in our Matthew series a little bit later on, uh, coming up in the uh, end of the 10th chapter. But what does Jesus mean when he says that you have to take up your cross? Well, that doesn't mean putting up with your mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law is not your cross to bear. It's not your aching back. That's not your cross. It's not your mean little kids. The cross only has one meaning. The cross is an instrument of death. And God says, Jesus says, you must die to yourself. You cannot preserve your old life and be saved. Jesus said, for whosoever shall save his life, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, folks, that's some mighty strange theology for many people today. And I was just reading the other day about one guy who was talking about repentance, and he said, you know, you come dangerously close to confusing justification and sanctification if you think that repentance has anything at all to do with scriptures like Matthew 16. But what do you think, or what does he think that losing your life and saving your life is all about if it doesn't relate to what happens to you when you become justified by faith? Regeneration puts you into that place. You're not regenerated by yourself, and you're not regenerated if it doesn't end in a life of, of, of if it ends in a, in a self-serving life, a life of self-preservation, and self-magnifying life. You're not regenerated if that's the way that you are. So this is what happens when the new nature is implanted into a Christian. This is the way that you live. You change all of that. And if you don't change all of that, if it hasn't been changed in you, then you haven't been born again. Oh, that means that there are a lot of people probably in churches that aren't really born again, and that's a problem. Now, you might have walked 20 aisles and knelt at 30 altars, but if this didn't happen to you, if you didn't get changed when you received Christ, then you're not born again. Now, sadly, there, there are many people that don't show the evidence of regeneration. They aren't changed, they aren't holy, they aren't being sanctified And John is trying to drive the point here in this section. If you claim to have the new nature and you don't show love for your brothers, then the Holy Spirit has not done a regenerating work in you. Now, secondly, and this is very important, the Holy Spirit illuminates the heart. And that's why I opened up the sermon in the way that I did. When you're reading the Bible and it clicks and you understand that reading, it's because the Holy Spirit is living in you. And Paul made that about as clear as he could say it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 2 for just a moment. And I want to read some verses here about the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you're regenerated, you receive the Holy Spirit. And that's what opens up to you repentance and saving faith and understanding what's written in God's Word. Now, bear in mind, what Paul writes here is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, For their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. And so Paul is telling us here that the the reason 
that we arrive at the understanding of truth of who Jesus is, the truth of who we are, the truth of what God did in sending Christ to die for us, the truth of why he did all of that comes because, that understanding comes because of the Holy Spirit has illuminated us in the darkness that we were in, He's opened our eyes so that we can see. We see things that people could never see with natural eyes. That comes through the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating us. Then another place, Paul says that we're blinded to truth. But he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul and John agree with this, that God penetrates the darkness of the heart, and because the Holy Spirit has taken off spiritual blinders, now we're able to understand God's Word and understand what God did for us. So God opens up that heart that was depraved and dead, and he gives us life in order that the gospel might do its saving work. So do you see what John is showing us? We know these things. Because God has given us his spirit. You understand the doctrines of of Christianity. You obey the commandments. You love your fellow man. Because the spirit indwells you. He's given you a new nature. You are a new man. God has illuminated your heart. And that's never possible without this sovereign work of God. Now, we need to step just a little bit further here. Go on a little bit further. Number two, the point that I want to talk to you about next, is the recognition of the Holy Spirit's work. How do we recognize that the Holy Spirit is in us? Well, a few days ago, I uh, received an email from Brother Gary Albright, and it was uh, quite interesting. And I read this uh, email, and I I just want to share a a part of it with you tonight. And uh, if you know some of the people that are mentioned here, just just be aware, it's not my purpose to personally deride anyone, but I'm just going to read to you what the the email said. And uh, it's an announcement, and and let me read you part of it. It says, Pastors Brad and Terry Freelander and the Connection Church have invited the Radical Gospel Worship Team to lead worship at their regular service on Sunday evening. Ray LeBlonde of Radical Gospel will be bringing the message. The event is open to everyone. The Radical Gospel worship team, led by Tina Cutler, has a unique anointing to lead believers to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Tina's heart and vision is to worship the Lord and release an atmosphere of worship that allows everyone to experience him in a deeper way. Now, there's some tip-offs here in the very beginning that what I've just read to you is a farce and can't have anything at all to do with the Holy Spirit. The first would be the rejection of the teachings of Scripture. The pastors of this church are Brad and Terry, and that's Terry with an I, so that leads me to believe that Terry's of the female persuasion, and uh, that's just simply against Scripture. You can't be a pastor of anything and be a female. That's against God's Word. So that can't be the Holy Spirit's work because Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth. And what the Holy Spirit is never going to do is guide us against the very truth that he inspired to be written in his word. He's not going to divide himself. He's not going to say something different than what he's already said in his word. So we start out here denying the written word of God by claiming that a woman could be a pastor. But that's not my main point. The email said, 
The radical gospel worship team led by Tina Cutler has a unique anointing to lead believers to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Tina's heart and vision is to worship the Lord and release an atmosphere of worship that allows everyone to experience him in a deeper way. Now, ditto to what I just said about women leaders in the church. But it says here, Tina has a unique anointing to lead believers to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then it says she is able to release an atmosphere of worship that allows everyone to experience the Holy Spirit in a deeper way. Let me tell you something. Whenever you hear the word anointing, and somebody claims to be specially anointed, then perk up your ears and get ready for the next pound of baloney that you're about to receive. Pull up your pant legs because you're getting ready to wade into something deep and smelly when somebody says that. Now, I, I, I can just imagine what the release is. The release, what is that? Well, I can imagine that's an emotional, hyped-up, goosey, gooey feeling that puts people in some kind of a frenzied state. Why do you need the radical gospel worship team? Well, you need that rhythmic pounding like a bunch of natives in the jungle to get your juices up so you can let out a few war cries. That's what it's for. Well, is that how we know the Holy Spirit? How does someone release the atmosphere of worship so that you can experience the Holy Spirit? Where's there one ounce of scriptural truth in that? Where do you find anything like that that's spoken of in the Bible? And what in the world does that mean anyway? What does it mean to release an experience of, 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 or an atmosphere of worship? I don't even know what that means. Well, the issue here is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. John says that he's in us. But how do we recognize that regenerating work? Is it some extraordinary experience? Well, extraordinary experiences don't prove anything. Demons cause some pretty extraordinary experiences. Read the New Testament. There's a fellow there that sat in the tombs, nude, cutting himself with stones. That's pretty extraordinary, I think. That's a real wild experience. And then there's some of these folks that think like that, that barking like dogs and laughing hysterically, that that's the atmosphere of worship and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Those people are anointed too, believe me. They had something dumped all over them, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Subjective experiences are not reliable. Reliable. The only, the only proof that's straight across the whole spectrum that's consistent all of the time is objective truth. So how do we recognize the indwelling spirit? Well, it's not in those, way, those ways. So let, let me give you four ways that you can know the Holy Spirit's in you. And, and these are not all the ways. Matter of fact, we're going to come back in a couple, three weeks, and, and we'll have a related topic here as we go on in, in uh, chapter 4. But how are, what are some ways that you can know the Holy Spirit's in you? Well, the first one would be that we have an interest in spiritual things. Why are we at church tonight? I believe it was Jorge that told me some months ago that there was a member of the church that said, after you've been saved a while, church gets boring. Is that, is that how you feel about God's Word? I would say that a person who says they're a Christian, uh, and after a little while they say it gets boring, then I would say they're right in the middle of 1 John 2.19, where John says they never were of us. They never, never were truly born again. Now, people can hold out for a while, but when they find out the demands and they find out the rigors of the Christian life, then the lid pops off, and you look down inside, and you don't see any change. They're going through the motions for a while, but all, the, all that's worn off, and so they, don't, they get bored. 
But God's people are interested in what we do here. Now, if you can live every day and not think about your salvation and not think about God, not think about God's providence in your life, you're not a Christian. And if you're going to church just to, through the motions to keep up the pretenses and you have no genuine interest in reading the Scriptures and none in prayer and none in service to God, if those kinds of things do not captivate you and energize you, then you're not a Christian. And that's because where the Spirit lives, the Spirit moves. And where the Spirit lives, the Spirit motivates. And where the Spirit lives, he leaves traces behind. You know that he's been there. So that's how you can know the Holy Spirit's living in you. Here's another way. We have an inward struggle with the old nature. See, when you're regenerated, you receive this new nature from God, and that doesn't mean the old nature is, is completely gone. I know there's some people that, that uh, teach, and it's, it's kind of getting popular in the Reformed circles to preach a one-nature theology which is really a problem to me. I don't understand how you can come up with that because if there's still sin in your life and you only have one nature, where does it come from? And they say, well, it comes out of the flesh. Well, what's the flesh? The flesh is the old nature. So there's a dual nature. You're still, your old nature is still with you when you get saved. You're still in the flesh, and so you'll have that old nature. But if you never have a sense that there is a struggle between that old nature and your new nature, then you haven't been born of God. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 7, if you would. And, and here we, we see the Apostle Paul as he writes about this. And you would think that Paul, who is writing this cathedral of Christian truth that's called Romans, would have been done with all the struggles of the flesh. But he writes Romans about 25 years after his conversion. And this is what he says in the 7th chapter, beginning in verse 18. For I know that in me... That is, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ the Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now there, the great apostle Paul is talking about a struggle that he has with sin. And we're not to read into that, that Paul was constantly giving into his flesh and that he's a hypocritical Christian. This is not what he's saying. He's talking about a war that goes on all the time between the flesh and the spirit, and it's always there. But what happens here with the Apostle Paul, of course, is the Holy Spirit gives him the power to overcome that. So Paul could write honestly. He can write honestly, "...be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ." So if you don't struggle with sin, then there's no spiritual warfare. See, the Holy Spirit is not going to let you stay in sin without fighting it. And so if you've arrived at peace with sin, then you don't have the peace of God. Now that leads me into another way to recognize the presence of the Spirit, and it's a natural outcome, and that would be we have experienced chastisement. If you're a child of God and you have a struggle with sin and you've overcome sin or, or you've rather given in to sin at some time, then you've experienced chastisement. 
Now, as Christians, we still sin, we struggle with it, and sometimes we give in. We don't have an excuse to, but sometimes we do. And the Holy Spirit never lets that fly by without a response. He doesn't say, well, let's just chalk that one up. Can't do anything about it. I hope I have better success next time. Now, what the Holy Spirit does, he grabs you and you feel the rod of correction. The Holy Spirit corrects. You can't stay in sin. You can't enjoy living there. He won't let you be happy in sin. And he doesn't because he wants to bless you. He doesn't want you to be content with sin and live in it because he wants to bless you. And he's not going to bless you when you're in sin. Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. And so the proof that you belong to God and that you are born again, that you have entered into a relationship with Christ, is that God treats you as a child. And if you're not his child, then God will leave you alone. He's not, he's not trying to chastise you if you're not his child. You can go on and sin and never give it a second thought. But if you, as a Christian, feel this oppressive weight that is, that is just crushing you, and you can't get any relief from it until you cry out to God and ask for God's forgiveness, then that means that you're a child of God. God's not going to let you stay in sin without being miserable. And so when there's a person that claims Christianity and he doesn't respond to the warnings of, of the church, he doesn't respond to the leadership of the church, he just goes on in his sin. You know what the Bible says about a person like that? If a person is a member of the church and he continues to live in sin and he doesn't respond to the cries, to the calls of God's people to come out of that sin, to repent of it and live like he should, then the Bible says treat that person like an unbeliever. And you treat him like an unbeliever because he shows no evidence of being saved. And treating him like an unbeliever does not mean that you mistreat him. It means that you treat him as somebody who needs to be saved by the grace of God. And so when you pray for him, you don't pray for his rededication. You pray for his salvation because he's never shown any evidence that the Holy Spirit is in him. So if prayers of repentance are not a part of your life, then you aren't a Christian. Now, of course, there is an evangelical repentance that happens when you're regenerated. That's when you're cleansed from the guilt of sin and you're justified by faith in Christ. But there's another repentance. Now, that first repentance, that evangelical repentance, is one that occurs only one time. You only need that one time. But there's another repentance that's the washing away of the defilement of sin. And I don't have time to talk about it now, but it's beautifully illustrated by Jesus when he bent down to wash the disciples' feet. And so if you've never come to that place, and you never sorrow over sin, if you never hunger and thirst after righteousness, then the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. But if you've been there, and you've done that, and you've been chastised, and you repented of your sin, then you know that you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And there's a whole lot more that I could say about this, but I want to just hone it in just a little bit more closely to the specific thought that John is talking about here in these verses. So the fourth one is, we have an outward show of the Spirit's work. You know that the Holy Spirit is in you because you have an outward show of his work. Now, the Spirit works internally, but that internal work becomes an external demonstration. 
And the external demonstration is not charged up emotions. It's not, it's not demonstrated by speaking in tongues. It's not the hyped up good time of the radical worship, uh, gospel worship team. It's not the traveling troop that's anointed to, to, to release the atmosphere of worship. That's not how you tell the Holy Spirit's in you. Now, folks, there's not a big secret to this. It's not a mystical thing. It's not magical like fairy dust. It's not the anointed whatever that somebody has to come and release for you and give you a mysterious atmosphere so you can know the Holy Spirit's around. This is pretty straightforward, and it's really quite simple. How does the Holy Spirit reveal himself? And you know the answer to it. He produces fruit. The Holy Spirit produces fruit. And the Scripture says in Galatians 5, you know it well, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lust. So if somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I'm a Christian. Watch how I can shake and I can groove and I can, and I can give you my angelic tongue twisters. I'm a Christian. And you say, well, yeah, good. Will you keep all of that? You just show me a long-time production of joy and peace and love and long-suffering. Don't give me your sudden outburst of firecrackers. Give me, you that, give, give me that staying power. Show me the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life and the way that you live and what you do every day. Show me by that, and then I'll know that the Holy Spirit lives in you, not by those other things. Now, the fruit that's mentioned first in that list is God's highest priority. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, the rest of them will be there too, but that's the one that puts, that's put first. That's the top of the list. Just like John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So if you want to know if the Holy Spirit is living in you, then you look and see what's hanging on your branches. What is hanging on your branches? Is it a bitter spirit? Is it gossip? Is it a rotten apple filled with all these little squiggly worms of sin? That's not the fruit that's produced by the Holy Spirit. Those are the things the Bible says come out of an evil heart of unbelief. Now, whatever's in your heart is eventually going to work its way out. And if your heart is evil, you might make it for a while, you might fool for a while, but eventually what's in your heart will come out. And what's going to happen to you is, yes, you'll get bored with church, and you won't struggle against sin, and you'll never feel, feel the rod of correction. But if you're born of God, that internal is revealed in the external fruits of the Spirit. You'll know he's there, and you'll have confidence that you are born again. You know why? Because love is God's nature. And if you've been born of God, you have his nature. So confidence comes from the Comforter. That's what Jesus called the Holy Spirit. He is the Comforter. He says in John 14, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. That's the promise. If you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to speak your word tonight. Lord, we thank you for the faithful members of your church and uh, who are interested in your word and, and love to hear it taught. And we pray that you would bless in their lives and, and we see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit around us. And we thank you, Lord. 
for uh, just the activities that go on in Brian Baptist Church where we just come to know that people really do love you and know you. So, Lord, bless us tonight. Help us as we, as we go our separate ways in a, little, in a few minutes. And, and Lord, just uh, speak to our hearts and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.